Good morning and welcome to Saturday Morning Live. It's the uh, 4th of February, it's 10.05, and you're joined by myself, uh, Shazil Lone, and my co-presenter in the studio today, Zishan Mirza. Good morning, Zishan. Good morning, Shazil. How are things? Yeah, very well, thanks. It's uh, getting a bit warmer. I think we saw a bit of sun this, this week. Uh, Absolutely. Slightly less grey. In February already, huh? One yep. month already gone in the year. Exactly. So, busy start to the year, obviously. There's a lot's been going on um, in the UK in particular, and that's something that we'll be focusing on. Uh, we'll be looking at the impact of uh, interest rate rises. Uh, climate change will be another subject today and this impact on uh, low-income families and, and the, the economy and families in general. I think that's something we'll be touching on today. Um, we are a live and interactive show, so please feel free to join us um, by calling in if you wish on 0208 687 7878. Uh, that's 0208 687 7878. Or via our socials at Voice of Islam UK, which is our Twitter handle, or via the website, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. We would love to hear from you if you have an opinion, uh, disagree or, or not feel free to call in uh, and let us know what you think. Um, so um, in terms of um, overall view, uh, Z, tell us a little bit about what's been going on. Let's do our news roundup to start off with. Yep. What do we kick off with? Thanks, what's been going on in the world? Yeah, um, lots going on. So I think, you know, obviously uh, Russia, Ukraine, you know, big topic that we've been talking about uh, almost on every show, I'd say. Mm. Um, so... There's been a lot more support for Ukraine. So we've seen um, countries like Germany and the US providing more weapons. Yep. Um, and we've got the European Union also now considering prosecuting certain war, war crimes or, you know, uh, herring cases related to the war uh, in the European Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. um, so Zelensky's kind of on the front foot. You know, um, there was also talks. Uh, I don't know if anyone uh, has been paying attention, but... Boris Johnson uh, spoke about Ukraine joining the European Union. The European Union have kind of said they would like uh, Ukraine to join and that they're, they're willing to kind of lower the bar, as it were, to, to let them in. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are some European ministers who are saying, look, it's not viable. Uh, Ukraine, you know, cannot join the European Union. It has to meet the, the conditions. Uh, I won't go into the conditions. They're very detailed, but you can look them up. So, yeah. the, you know, th there's a very... Uh, contentious relationship it seems between Europe and supporting the war in uh, or su supporting Ukraine defend themselves against Russia mm. and they're kind of like they kind of have their foot halfway through the door they're, they're not really going all in with the support but it seems it seems kind of futile what they're doing in a sense that so they're providing weapons, they're providing funding, mm -hmm. and they're providing, uh, you know, all different kinds of support, humanitarian, technical assistance. But that can be interpreted as, um, you know, Putin could well interpret that as, you know, those countries showing support for Ukraine. Mm. It doesn't matter what type of support it is. It doesn't have to be British troops on the ground fighting alongside Ukrainians. Yeah. You know, yeah. Putin could very well interpret, you know, providing weapons or support as, a, as an act of aggression. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you think about the last show where we spoke about nuclear weapons and the nuclear threat, yeah. um, you know, it, it all seems to be heading towards escalation. And even though we're not using the word escalation or you might not be reading it in the press, yeah. subtly, you know, there hasn't been any de-escalation. If you think about since the beginning of the war, um, I think there was a period over Christmas which Putin kind of came forward himself and said he was willing to you know, take it easy on the war. Mm. But aside from that, it's been escalation. 
So this is, I would say, another further case of escalation. Not great news. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see. Obviously, we'll talk about on the next show what the impact's been, maybe. Yeah, and I think I think obviously almost one year on now uh, from when this started. And you know, for for many of us, you know, generationally speaking, we haven't seen a war in Europe. Um, yeah, we're one year on. It doesn't seem to be that either side is really gaining any kind of upper hand. Um, could it be that eventually there's a stalemate and both both walk away with some sort of face intact is that something we could potentially look at it's a great point isn't it and i think the objective the objectives of the war for the russians um became unclear so you know at a certain point we knew that they wanted to take ukraine then it kind of regressed to certain cities Mm. and now we don't know um we just know that they're staying in ukraine and ukraine uh, it's very tricky as well to tell if ukraine for the cities that they were able to seize back We've yeah. not really heard what that means for the war overall. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's it's all very sensitive at the moment and it doesn't look good, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's not ideal. But, I mean, again, do you do read during the week that, okay, Biden is sending so-and-so tanks this week and Europe has promised X amount of armaments and what have you, training soldiers. Those are something else that I read about as well. But, I mean, this, I struggle sometimes to th- think, you know, look, you, it's a very, you know, balance. It's a balancing act which both the major major uh, countries, you know, at at play will have to find because you don't want to engage directly, yep. but you are effectively there, or you know, you are being a policeman almost. Yeah, exactly. And stop Russia. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a really weird situation in the sense that for I'll give you an example. So the British government want mm. to support, so they are sending certain weapons and I think some financial aid, etc. Yeah, but when it comes to uh, providing support where it counts, so I think Zelensky turned around and said, "Look, you know, we could really do with some fighter jets." Um, mm. And uh, Ben Wallace, um, who's our defence minister. Um, kind of explained, and I don't know if this is an excuse or if it's the legitimate truth, but he was like, oh, well, we can't provide you fighter jets because it takes 35 months to learn how to fly one. Now, I'm sure the Ukrainians have folks who can fly fighter jets. Um, Whether they can fly British fighter jets, I don't know. But um, there are excuses coming out from the kind of allies on why they can't go further, which I find quite interesting. And it, yeah. it does allude to the fact that they don't want to get dragged into this war by proxy. So I think um, there's, a, there's a lot of complicated angles. Um, and helping Ukraine, you know, the, the definition of help is varied uh, across countries. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, obviously, um, I think at this key time as well, uh, in economic um, downturn that we're having, Globally, um, you know, in particular in in the UK, with the IMF talking about the UK growth rates being, uh, you know, minus point six percent expectations out of all the G seven, it's the only country which is going to be negative in terms of growth for this year. Yep, yep. Um, and then I think even this week, Bank of England did say that yeah, we're around the point five uh, minus percent mark. So I think that's something that I think with all of this, you know, war escalation, you know, there are certain industries and the, the weapons industry is something which the US, I mean, in the UK in particular, I mean, I'm not sure how much we produce, but it still must be quite key for certain, you know, parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I mean, it brings us on to our next topic quite nicely, which will be mm. the interest rate hikes, the, yeah. the next news roundup. But yeah. Um, yeah, you know, the effect on the economy has 
has been intense. I think, you know, uh, we, we'll come on to this later, which is uh, renewable energy and oil, mm. um, you know, prices in supermarkets. And then, you know, that's exacerbated by things like Brexit and COVID. Um, and then for us to now be in a war, um, mm. you know, I think even people who probably don't pay attention to politics are very aware of the fact, are very aware of the external yeah. factors affecting everything in our country at the moment. Um, but yeah, I was, I was um, sorry. Did you want to say anything? No, more no. I said yeah. No, there are absolutely a lot of moving parts to this. Uh, I think you know this this provides part of it. Not that it's a key driver of the UK economy about weapons, but I think in, in the states it, it definitely is for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of companies who, you know, who politic and you know support presidential candidates and presidents alike to curry favor when it comes to weapons and armaments because it's a big big industry in the US. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I think um, I saw a. A really interesting meme and uh i think it said that you know ukraine are about to find out why uh, america doesn't have health care right and you know it was kind of joking that you know they spend all their money on weapons etc mm. um but it's true you know and and they they do kind of disproportionately spend a lot on defense yeah um and you know even here in this country i think we've had the debate a few times like should we be spending this much on defense um, but I think the the kind of military complex mm. is is still very much alive. Yeah, very true, very true. So yeah, what was our second topic today? Z? So the, the the next topic is the interest rate hikes. Yes. Um, so for for those of you on fixed rates, I think you're temporarily okay. Mm. Uh, for those of you on fixed rates that are expiring, you're not okay. And if you're on a tracker mortgage, uh, then you would have got a text message from your bank to say that the base rate has changed. Yeah. So, you know. It, it's very difficult. I, I really empathise with, um, you know, people on on kind of lower middle income, uh, who are in lower middle income households. Sorry, and you know, we're not just talking about mortgage rate hikes. Hmm. You know, we're we're talking just as I said, supermarket uh, prices are up. Oil uh, has an impact on gas and electricity and water. Yep. Um, I'm I'm you know I'm pretty sure council tax is at the highest it's ever been. And, uh, you know, so the combined monthly outgoings of, of regular folks yeah. are going through the roof. Now, the the Bank of England uh, hiked the rate by 0.5. Yep. Um, I think it's not radical, but it's not conservative. So I think, you know, a more conservative approach, for example, in America, they will hike it by like 0.25 to kind of, you know, lessen the effect. Mm. I think our, you know, Bank of England didn't really consider that. They, they were really concerned about inflation which is a valid concern. Um, and if you ask the regular person, well, how do we address inflation, you know, and interest rates, you know, they're not going to have an answer for you. So, uh, you know, I, may, uh, I can empathize with the Bank of England's decision, but yeah. the effect's been horrible. No, absolutely. But, you know, the one thing I, I'd uh, uh, interested, I attended a presentation this week, and basically what they were saying, there was an economist, chief economist of one of the banks, and his outlook was that interest rate rises are no longer inflecting inflation the way he qualified that was because it's from the supply side meaning okay. that you know with all the issues that we've had about costs going higher and what have you that the supply hasn't been there therefore you know post covid and what have you with production um you know for example maybe cars uh, as one of those examples or semiconductors which aren't more yeah. readily available for electronic vehicles etc so what's happened is you know um you know shipping costs we talk about oil prices we talked about these sort of things have gone up so much that when 
uh, its goods are not being provided on shelves. So therefore, when there's a scarcity, they will go up in price, whatever happens, right. regardless of whether people, you know, don't have enough money in their pocket because of interest rate rises and high mortgages, which is what is normally the traditional effect. But he's saying, no, it's a supply side led thing. And they think that inflation was, you know, sort of 7% plus before the US even started raising interest rates is probably still around that mark now. Yeah. And and well, and then it and then it raises the question, doesn't it? Like, what affects supply? What's affecting the supply, mm-hmm. right? And <laughs> I think uh, going back to what you just said earlier about the UK economy, and you know, we saw it contract. I think at the yep. end of last year and the beginning of this year, and yep. uh, Russia's uh, improved, and uh, South Africa had uh, a stronger growth than us. Yeah. Um, so. Th- the statistics are really shocking, right? And um, now, uh, you know, it's the same. Uh, Saf isn't here with us. I think he's going to be dialing in shortly. But mm-hmm. uh, I think the narrative of, you know, how do we abandon Brexit is coming back. You know, I've seen yeah. uh, it, it's now kind of being spoken about uh, by senior politicians. Um, I'm seeing it a bit more in newspapers. And I'm seeing even some right wing uh, kind of papers that had previously supported Brexit, maybe rethinking objectively whether it's good for the country. Um, and, you know, it's a really interesting place to be in. Yeah, I read this week, uh, interestingly, that those areas that were strongest in Brexiting and wanting to leave have been the worst affected economically. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really hard not to go down the told you so road, yeah. uh, road because... Yeah. Um, you know, for Remainers. But look, here's what's important. I think if, especially for the uh, politicians who have realised that, look, this might be a bad idea and who have now kind of set up campaigns to potentially reverse Brexit, etc. Yeah, I think that's admirable. You know, I think it's very rare in politics that yeah. you see folks kind of backpedalling uh, to the point where they're actively now trying to legislate against what they did. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, look, if, if there's a coordination and a campaign to... to reverse Brexit. Now, and, and ne- look, I'm not saying there's necessarily uh, all, all the issues in the country are down to Brexit. They are down to kind of um, global issues around energy and war. Um, but Brexit seems to have exacerbated kind of every downturn that we had. Yep. Um, and I think at this point, it's undeniable. Um, and, you know, I think even if you don't pay attention to politics, um, you know, I was in the supermarket the other day, you know, and, and I was just saying, you know, like to my wife that there's everything that used to be a pound is yeah. probably closer now to three pounds. Right. Right. Like it's it's now like, you know, two pound fifty, three pounds for the things that we probably paid a pound for. And that was probably what, two years ago, a year and a half ago, we were paying those prices. Yeah. You know, it's not. And, and so it's happened, you know, very recently. Um, and I think obviously, so then going back to the news roundup, sorry, the, the Bank mm. of England have now like responded um, to r- rising prices. Um, and obviously, you know, taking your point into account, uh, Shazel, that mm. it, it might not be linked as well, that um, it's, it just all feels like a bit of a mess. Um, and even the Bank of England um, in their forecasting have been quite conservative and reserved. They've not been able to say much. Um, and so it just it all feels very very volatile at the moment, um, and we're, we're going to talk about um, the Adani Group later, which was a, a big scandal in India. Mm. Um, but the the, the general, um, I think for 2022, 
if we if we refer to global markets and capital markets, I think equities were on a downturn generally. No? Yeah, yeah. They in what period? Sorry. Uh, so for twenty twenty two, for for most of it, I'd say there was a period maybe where equities were probably recovering, but I mean the FTSE is at all time highs. Oh, this okay. Week, this uh, week, it uh, did this touch week. there. So whether it's a recovery or you know, but it's at all time highs. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so there there is a bit of a bounce back then. Yeah. Um, and you know, m- maybe that's Christmas. Maybe maybe that's uh, us kind of now fully coming out of the rut of COVID. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Um. So it. So volatility is the word. Yes. Then. Correct. correct. <laughs> um, yeah. Spot on. So I, I think, you know, um, it, it's very tough to give an economic analysis at the moment. Um, but again, you know, we'll, we'll come back and touch on this. So moving on. Yeah. Um, so the next story. So uh, Adani Group and Hindenburg's uh, research on them. Yes. Um, this is really, really interesting. Um, like for our, for our listeners of the show. Mm. So um, Adani Group is a really, really successful conglomerate in India. Um, and you Run do ports and what have you. Correct? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And, and they focus on a lot of infrastructure. Mm. Um, you know, everything you can think of in the country, basically, from yeah. an infrastructure perspective, they're focused on. Um, now, in, in um, America, uh, I, I don't know if we have any here. Uh, Shazam might be able to confirm, but mm. um, there are professional short shorting or like uh, yes. organizations. organizations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and and what that means, just very quickly, is <clears throat> there's an organization out there that um, you know, similarly, like you have funds that will invest you know for the long run in, in companies succeeding mm. you know the, the opposite of that is is uh you've got a bunch of people who will look very closely at uh corporate documents and conduct corporate investigations and if they think nefarious activities are going on or like there's uh you know the corporation isn't behaving in a kind of compliant way um they leak this information um but precluding that they'll place a bet that the the corporation is going to absolutely tank uh, or, or go down on the market yeah so for for the listeners effectively speaking they will sell the shares in the market with the hope of buying them back at a lower or a zero rate in the future exactly mm-hmm. um, and so it's very profitable to criticize corporations if you're engaged in this business right? sure now Hindenburg happens to be one of those organizations and you know it does it does I think the 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 philo- the philosophy of what they do and, and their motive is, yeah. it can be questioned yes. but i think in this case when they come across legitimate wrongdoing in corporations and yes. profit off of it then um it, it almost feels like a good thing right so uh, he- here's what happened um now hindenburg uh were of the view after doing about 2 years of research that adani group was setting up shell companies uh, giving itself loans, which um, can have a massive benefit for your tax affairs, sure. um, and also conducting insider trading. Now, the interesting thing is Adani didn't do it very well. So he had kind of set up offshore entities, but a lot of the offshore entities had Adani in the name or were ab- like easily, uh, you could easily link, link them back them. Yeah, yep. to the Adani group. So um, Hindenburg were, uh, I think they produced a, a close to 60-page report outlining all of the insider trading accusations against Adani Group. Yeah. Now, um, they were able to do it in a way where it was very accurate uh, and it didn't come across as an accusation. It, it came across as very kind of, uh, it could be happening. Um, and Adani Group lost $100 billion in market cap value. 
yeah. uh, I think in, in the space of, of a few weeks. Yeah. So um, that's had a massive impact because Adani, uh, I, th- I, th- I think the, the chap who owns it is called Adani uh, mm. as well, but the Adani group um, management are very close to Narendra Modi as yes. well. And so um, there's been an accusation that you know, this is an attack on the country and, you know, it's all very political. Um, and Adani has, uh, you know, I think taken Adani Group off of, um, he wanted to sell potentially uh, certain branches of the Adani Group. Yeah, by uh, an IPO, right? He wanted to yeah, come to and market and sell shares against exactly, certain companies. Yeah, yep, exactly. Yep. And he wanted to, yeah, then uh, do an IPO. And, and I think he's pulled out of that. Um, and that's now having a massive effect in uh, India and the regulatory environment there. Um, and also, it's really raising questions about how uh, professional sorting organizations kind of uh, achieve their objectives, right? Yeah. Um, because I think uh, Hindenburg were able to use a lot of kind of publicly available information, but it does involve a lot of kind of private corporate investigation as well. Yeah. Um, so those kind of practices are always kind of uh, questioned. But yeah, overall, uh, th- this is a very, very interesting story, especially if you're interested in finance, uh, lots of insider trading, lots of tax fraud. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the Adani group do end up in some kind of court, uh, if the Hindenburg kind of accusations are material. Um, so uh, yeah, very, very interesting story. Uh, and I urge you to follow it. Yeah, no, I think in particular, if you if you look at India, it's quite interesting because obviously India in terms of being an economic superpower is 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 slated to be you know in terms of population and size of economy to outgrow china in the very near future yeah so it could be one of the very dominant players uh, you know economically speaking i think from a regulatory perspective and a reputational perspective they will want to come across as a bona fide you know conservatively regulated well-respected financial community and okay. these sort of stories do not help yeah there's no doubt about that. I 100% agree. Um, and, and I think, you know, it'll be really important for the Indian regulator to, to demonstrate, you know, like how they're going to deal with it. You know, and I think the UK is heavily invested in India. Uh, and there's always an expectation there as well that uh, India will adapt itself to UK style regulations and laws. What I find interesting is, though, I don't know if you saw the Panorama um, uh, documentary on Modi. Um, maybe what a few weeks back I did yeah and it was very I mean obviously Panorama is a UK centric program yeah but seeing people like Jack Straw and people like that talking very openly about because obviously there's there's a big element of um, prior to uh, Narendra Modi becoming um, you know India's uh, leader he was uh, you know the um, in Gujarat he was their uh, mayor so to speak yeah and there was a lot of unfortunate Riots between uh, you well, Hindus against Muslims, unfortunately, in the country at the time, yeah. and there was a lot of killings happening at that time. and And according to the Panorama, uh, Panorama documentary, he pretty much stood by and let things heat up and violence to occur and deaths to occur. Unfortunately, you know, in the country, and, and many Muslim lives uh, were lost. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I was debating with this with some of my friends, and you know, I think what you know. What Modi um, Modi has inherited the India uh, the Hindu Muslim rivalry obviously right mm. like he, that that's uh, that problem was there before him they were fighting and killing each other before him um, and 
you could argue that he's been biased in all of this uh, and that documentary very much showed his bias right like he he was yeah. uh passive on on violence and you know to the point where uh, he was allowing it to continue and then there was accusations in the documentary as well that um you know senior police chiefs were potentially told to allow the indian public to kind of release their aggression yes. that they, they they should be allowed to release their aggression yeah it's a really tricky one for me right now i i don't think um I don't think nationalism is a good thing and that's what Modi has built his campaign on right like mm. um but here's what I will say okay India um has had a very unique world uh, international kind of stage positioning over the last decade uh they've seen themselves you know emerge from independence to a world superpower and yep. then over the last 5 years you've really seen Indian diplomats speaking in a kind of superpower kind of way where yep. you know they won't be lectured by the uk the us or china yeah um and so you've really seen india kind of come through as an independent actor on the international stage sure right and that level of um momentum and strength that a country can show hmm. unfortunately you know i don't agree with it but you could argue things like nationalism Yeah. and things like that really help mobilize the country for efforts like that. Yes. You know, and now we're talking about a global superpower that's competing with like Brazil, China, you know, all yeah. the all the kind of top countries. <laughs> and so, you know, you could argue that domestically Modi has done so badly, right? Mm. But from a foreign perspective, you know, on the international stage, he's achieved a lot. Yes. And not only that, but even if you put it into the context of the Russia-Ukraine war, right you really saw how uh modi was willing to posture away from the west hmm. he was sending his diplomats you know to give hostile statements you know saying we're going to carry on buying russian oil yeah. we're happy to carry on trading with russia hmm. why would we bow to russian sanctions hmm. and so you know as much as i you know i, I personally have like a, a, a left wing leaning but you know as as much as i empathized with that documentary hmm. because it pointed out some really nasty kind of right wing tactics for me yeah. as well but ultimately i did think that it's very convenient for the bbc the us etc to start now attacking modi yeah um given his kind of strategic positioning hmm. um for india in the world Uh, it's all very coincidental so it's very yeah, I mean, interesting I, i was surprised by it but now you shed light on it and from that perspective that yes perhaps that is the the inkling to start placing uh you know these kind of views there because otherwise you know in terms of term especially with, with brexit as well you know britain needs its trading partners and india is, is a key part of those i mean that was one of the, the key announcements that 100%. were made even from because the, the pharmaceutical industry is very large in india yeah exactly and and you know for me that relationship feels slightly fractured right mm. and and so i feel like um you know there's a lot of um in, in the the hindu muslim issue has always existed mm. um they've been murdering each other for a long time in in huge numbers um modi coming in didn't really uh deviate the trend and <clears throat> you know i i just think that the the f um the relationship that india you know has with the uk now it is mm. is questionable so yeah we'll we'll see we'll see how it goes yeah absolutely and obviously we do pray and hope that uh, things do get better generally you know in india between you know two um 
you know, right, well, two religions essentially speaking, but, you know, you have to see that, you know, in harmony there's much more strength. Even as a country, I'm sure India recognises that and that for their betterment, you know, you know, for people to be, obviously, your religious belief is one thing, but they all do identify as, as, as Indians in terms of, you know, their nationality. And that's yeah. something that you require if you wish your economies to move forward and for your people to be, you know, open-minded and to progress, you need that. 100%. And, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are. I think the the, the it's very easy to, to fall into the India versus Pakistan narrative, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to remember that, you know, India, I think, has um, one of the biggest Muslim populations on the planet it's in its not country. The biggest, yeah. Think, yeah. Um, you know, and you can criticize Modi but you know he does have a country like no other right like um Palestine and Israel weren't able to do it yeah <laughs> so yeah. so you know Modi has got you know Muslims and Hindus living side by side I'm not mm. saying it's because of Modi but yeah, no. it, you know they're living side by side and they're killing each other it's it's all out irrespective of Modi mm. uh, and I guess that's my point um, so I think ultimately the only thing I'd say about the BBC documentary, I just found it slightly odd yeah. that, you know, and not only a, they didn't make a documentary, they're making a series, you know, mm. so it's like, well, what other world leaders are you making series on? You That's know? true. And, <laughs> so how does that work? Yeah. Um, I mean, you'd think propaganda is no longer, you know, used yeah. or people would see it coming, but perhaps not. Perhaps yeah. Perhaps not. Um, so that was the only thing I'd be conscious of. But, uh, you know, I absolutely agree with, with uh you know, failures uh, by the police and the government to, to stop violence. That's absolutely valid. Yeah, yeah. Um, so moving on, hmm. then, um, so this was a really interesting story and, and now, now we're going to start kind of focusing on, uh, you know, impacted communities and, and vulnerable communities. Um, you know, oil prices have gone up a lot recently uh, and that's had an effect on our gas and electric prices. Yeah. Now... British gas were were found uh, over the course of uh, the last two years to be installing meters now, uh, pay as you go meters mm-hmm. uh, in a mandatory way, right? So what they do is they say if you cannot afford your monthly direct debit or your annual um, bill, then what we'll do is we're going to come in and um, install a pay as you go meter so that uh, you can only pay as you go, and if you no longer can pay, then it will effectively cut your electricity and gas off. Now, one rule against that, if you cannot pay your your electric or or gas, is if you're a vulnerable person, right? Um, British gas aren't allowed by law to come into your home and install that meter. Um, And as you can imagine, the installation of the meter is a very contentious process. Mm -hmm. Like if if you imagine how it occurs on the day, you have bailiffs turning up, you'll have the police turning up. They're Mm -hmm. essentially forcing themselves into your home and um, forcefully constructing, you know, something for a pay-as-you-go meter to go into. So mm. it's a very, very invasive process. Um, and, you know, so this law to protect vulnerable people exists quite rightly. Mm. And the definition of vulnerable um, is, is varied. It, it goes from uh, disabled to single mothers with, uh, you know, children um, or individuals on, on you know, low incomes who, who might be struggling. Um, but the report found that British gas was, in fact, going in and installing pay-as-you-go meters um, in vulnerable people's homes. Yeah. And not only were they uh, did the report find that, but they were also able to capture it on video footage. Right. And the video footage was really, really disturbing, right? Because you have um, you have British gas employees 
finding enjoyment in um kind of wow. you know doing this to people mm. you know and you know and i think some one of the reporters wore a camera and the british gas employees can be uh, heard saying you know oh this is my favorite bit you know when right. they're about to install the meter and everyone's kind of getting upset it's almost like they're enjoying the conflict you know and they're mm, enjoying the drama yeah. yeah not really thinking about the consequences or the kind of context of, of what those people might be going through um so the uh, the British government are obviously absolutely furious. Uh, they're now coming after British Gas. British Gas has completely ceased all uh, pay-as-you-go meter installations. Right. Um, and we will now see... Um, and sorry, it wasn't only British Gas. I think there was another company. I can't remember it. So, mm-hmm. um, But there was another one. And um, so now we're going to see court proceedings over the course of the next 12 months um, against our energy suppliers for essentially attacking vulnerable people or, or mm-hmm. kind of getting them to uh, you know, pay for something they can't afford. Yeah. Now, uh, and there's an undertone to this, which is, you know, I think we we see in the press that prices are going up. We yeah. don't really ever, you know, we know that people might not be able to afford to pay. Mm. Um, and then there's always like movements as well that will say, okay, you, you know, don't pay. The government will, will most likely think of something or, or, you know, come up with something for, for uh, poor or middle income communities. Mm. But they just haven't in this case, right? Like yeah. nothing has come through. Really, Rish, I think Rishi Sunak has tried through the benefit system to try and assist people with the cost of uh, living. Yeah. Um, but it's not working, right? And you've got people who are now uh, having pay-as-you-go meters installed, um, and you have people freezing to death, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's uh, it's not it's not a lie to say that we've had elderly people who are now dying um, because they can't afford heating. Yeah, uh, winter's almost over, so now this topic's probably going to fade away. But it's really, really important that we we kind of hold the government to account on how much support they give to the middle and low income communities. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I think you know one thing that we can commend the government for is is uh, coming after British Gas. You know, and and um, British Gas uh, senior management absolutely denied that they knew about this mm-hmm. um, which is un, you know, incomprehensible in, in this day and age when you kind of think yeah. about how corporations work of course, and the checks and balances they have um, you know, it, it's, it's not acceptable so yeah a very very kind of like uh, tough story from this week was um, yeah, seeing, seeing British Gas uh, mess up in that way yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the the issue, right? In terms of um, you have corporations who are responsible to their shareholders, they have a scarcity or a resource which is going up in uh, price, and there's not really much. I think from a from a perspective that okay, fine, unless the government comes in and starts issuing subsidies and what have you, um, you know, these companies will continue to you know charge what the going rate is. Um, and then, you know, it's not really their issue, I think, as far as they're looking at it, that, you know, there are certain parts of society who will struggle. And I think that's where you're right. I mean, the government, you do need to hold them accountable. Um, but then perhaps just from a wider base, you know, are we happy for the government just to carry on borrowing, printing money like we've been talking about, just to give, you know, people money in their pockets? Now, I'm saying they sh- that they shouldn't do that and put people in money's pockets, but just in the sense that, are we perhaps less, because of the struggling or this tough time that we're having economically as a society, are we less inclined towards charity and help, generally speaking? I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I think the society we live in is, is self-preservation, right? And, mm. and, you know, if things become expensive, it becomes harder to think about 
people other than yourself. Yeah. Um, I I just yeah I I, I struggled to see how, like, you know, I th- I think with utilities, the argument of nationalisation is a strong one, mm. right? Because what we're saying is, we don't want to put money in your pocket so that you can somehow respond to international events, right? And yeah, you, and by like you know if your oil goes up because a war's occurring the government can't come forward every time and say okay well here's an extra 200 pounds so that you can cover it yeah it's easier for me to say we'll deal with international events as a country right and mm. so we'll, we'll regulate the price according to what we can deal with as a country we can't do that because the utilities aren't nationalized right? correct so yeah. what we have is we've got um and for the lack of a better term, capitalists who who, who work in the senior management, uh, their objective of senior management in these organizations, if it's a private organization, is to create revenue and profit. So they are they are deciding whether the British public can absorb the what's going on in the world, right? And if they decide that okay, the UK public can absorb this, then they say, okay, well, well, we'll take a bit of profit from that, yeah. right? And and that's where the harm is. That's it, it's the what it actually costs to use energy, and you know, by the time it gets to the end user, and mm. who else has benefited from that is the issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and we're going to come on to this later as well. We're going to talk about Shell's profits. We're going to talk about these renewable companies. Uh, yeah. uh, sorry, not renew uh, fossil fuel companies yeah. and their profits, but. You know, the, I absolutely agree with you that the government aren't able. You know, they it's not sustainable to keep giving money to people or to come up with like initiatives to support low middle income communities. You need a kind of long term solution. Now, there's a lot of criticism to nationalisation as well. It creates inefficiency, bureaucracy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But I mean, there's you know the NHS is still the most popular health service in the country. You have far more efficient, profitable, prestigious, well put together health organisations yep. that you can go and pay. But the NHS is still the most popular. Yeah. So no matter how bureaucratic, uh, you know, uh, low like uh, inflate bloated these uh, kind of public institutions become, mm-hmm. um, for me, you know, it's it's still a way to centralise and attack yes. the issues that might be coming to you as as a country. So. You know, I, I feel like that's one of the solutions, um, and I, I feel like you know some ministers do talk about that quite often. I doubt we'll see it in our lifetime. Well, I think the greater good that part is very important. Um, you know, and obviously from our perspective, um, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Mushul Ramad, the leader of the Amdi Muslim community, uh, in 07 when we were going through uh, some of the tough times, um, he highlighted that the more affluent people should be mindful of the needs of their brothers and feelings of anger and despite. Uh, should never prevent them from extending their hand uh, in helping the poor. Um, has a related incident from the life of the of Hazrat Muhammad. Uh, may peace and blessings be upon him. He was going through a very difficult time of trial when Hazrat Aisha, his wife, was accused of a certain wrongdoing. At that time, there were certain people who were otherwise righteous, but for some reason ac- accused Hazrat Aisha wrongfully, whom Hazrat Abu Bakr was helping financially. After Hazrat Aisha's pardon from Allah Almighty, Hazrat Abu Bakr swore that he would never help these people again. And on that occasion, Allah revealed the following verse. 
And let not those who possess wealth and plenty among you swear not to give aught to the kindred or to the needy and to those who have left their homes in the cause of Allah. Let them forgive and forbear. Do you not desire that Allah should forgive you? And Allah is most forgiving, most merciful, most merciful. So this is the commandment from the believers to follow for all times. And despite the fact that Hazrat Abu Bakr's daughter was suffering and the Prophet himself was grieving, Allah commanded not to withdraw your helping hand even at this difficult time. So I think that's something that, you know, we talked about that, yeah, you're right. We do focus on ourselves when, you know, there's almost a situation where you know, things are getting tight and what have you. But I think that's the time when people need it most and that's when it's most valued. Yeah. You know, your charitable charitable um, donations, you know, it doesn't have to be money. You know, it can be anything. It can be just, you know, helping someone out, you know, getting them back and forth, uh, you know, it can help people's moods out. So I think that's something that, I think as a society, because we're so aware of what's going around the world uh, and going on with prices and inflation, I think we're more aware than ever in terms of politics and finances, perhaps as a society than ever before. But perhaps that's causing a fear and an, almost a protectionism. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think it's harder, but I think it's something that we as a people and, and obviously guided by you know our um, Islamic principles that that's something we look towards, that we still maintain that position in society to help those who are less it's, better off than us. It's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because I think, you know, the wealthier you get, the, the type of charity that you do, you probably begin to associate more with money the wealthier you get. Mm. And you start to do more donations. And, yeah, I'm, I'm don't get me wrong, I'm sure there's uh, richer people out there who, who give their time as well. Sure. Um, but if you look at low-middle-income communities... Um, councils do research with them, right, to work out um, the probability of them falling into abject poverty. Yeah. And they do that by asking very uh, abstract questions, like, if your boiler was to burst, yeah, um, would you a would you be able to have it fixed? Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, some people might answer no, and then um, the following question will be, um, do you have somebody you could turn to? Mm-hmm. If um, that boiler burst and you weren't able to afford to have it fixed, is there somebody who would be able to step up and, and support you? Yeah. And what we what what we find in low middle income communities is that none of them have got the spare five hundred pounds for a boiler to be you know go wrong, mm. but almost everyone has mm. somebody to turn to, right, in mm. the event of a financial hardship. Yeah. Um. And so charity at and and you know this this is. Uh, I'm, I'm sure people know about this, but charity at the lower level mm. is much more um, kind of alive and happening and interconnecting people than it is, you know, it, it feels like higher up, it's just all about money and giving money to organizations that might be doing good things, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But you have it happening at a very local level. And that's where I feel like a lot of politicians have forgotten you know that that's where communities are built that's how yeah. people get through poor, like tough times you know uh, that's how poor communities push forward mm. is they support one another and that actually if you if you put the the, the kind of uh, resources in infrastructure there for them to support one another you know like green spaces uh, invest in in local services like youth clubs things like that mm-hmm. and you allow the community to actually support each other better mm. It, it helps you better through times like this, through times of, you know, expensive uh, goods, etc. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting because the low middle income uh, communities 
version of charity is is very different from the the level of charity that you know say we're we're familiar with where we you know give money to charities. So essentially, you're saying we need to promote interaction and and places of interaction so people can be an emotional support to one another, connect, and then potentially have you know financial support if 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 they so you know feel feel that way and can do absolutely um and now i i don't want to skew this because a lot of this research came from the north and mm. in the north communities are very much still alive mm. um but in the south we we struggle a bit yeah. um and you know it, it's it's an interesting dynamic yeah no absolutely and i think that's the thing uh, in the society we live in especially in more cosmopolitan cities where everything's a bit more fast moving you know yeah. and that's generally exactly. it is you know people's time is always of the essence and I, I guess you know the further away you come from the hub you know of industry and of finance perhaps people you know do have that time to think take time for themselves to think a bit more openly and think for others perhaps whereas I think sometimes we do end up living in a society where it's just focusing on ourselves and you know, yeah. taking care of number one. And then before you know it, you haven't thought about anyone else at all for years on end. Exactly. Um, and, you know, look, another important thing to say, uh, you know, while we're on the show is, you know, giving money uh, isn't the only way of charity, right? Like if, mm. if, if, if you want to be charitable, you know, voluntary work is an amazing way to contribute to society. Absolutely. Right. Like I could not um, express that enough. And I think that should be the moral of this particular like news roundup mm. You know, is you can you can really create value in your local communities by turning up to things and contributing. Right. Yeah. It underpins our community. You know, yes. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community is underpinned by voluntary work to the point where you know, it, it's exemplary. Uh, you know, we're able to organize and achieve things as a community that folks have to spend millions and millions of pounds to do. Sure. So, um, you know, that's the other thing to take away from this is that, you know, you can you can be charitable through your time as well. I think the other, the difficult part as well is, I think just looking at it from the other side of things, when you talk about charity and being able to do things. So something that we used to do as a community and perhaps, you know, perhaps on an ad hoc basis was, to get together, you know, you especially in the colder days, you know, you'd get together, you'd you'd arrange for cooking or something very simple like, you know, rice and lentils and you'd take that to central London and you'd go out and you'd try and help people and give them a warm meal. Yeah. Unfortunately, over the past few years, you're not able to do that anymore. You're yep. not allowed to do that anymore because obviously there's safety and, and those types yep. of things and, and you don't want to make people ill and what have you. But it feels like sometimes with, with a good intention you know, to do that and to help someone out, you know, to the level of quality, you know, if everyone did that across the, the you know, the, the UK, for example, yeah, maybe some people will get it wrong, maybe they won't cook right and et cetera. And yeah. you don't want to get people to get ill, but it just sometimes feels that, you know, f from a good hearted place that you want to do something, but you're not allowed to do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, unless it's, oh no, we'll give you a slot at X time to go ahead and do this, which, okay, my, I, I get the coordination element. But sometimes it's like, you know, I think people could just do something off their own backs, but they're not really allowed to. And then it's like, OK, if there's that much bureaucracy, why, why bother? Them yeah, either? yeah, yeah. No, it's a great point. Don't be put off by the bureaucracy. Uh, and it happens a lot. Absolutely. And, mm. and, and you know, and I, I think this is what I say to folks as well. Like uh, when you're if you come out of uni and you're struggling to, to find a job out of uni, which is a really common thing, by the way. Mm. Uh, so if you are struggling, um, you know, we can relate to that. Mm. <laughs> um, the, Voluntary work is an amazing way to, to elevate your uh, career because it, it demonstrates that you can um, create value, organize, 
um, you know, put some effort in and, and act in a responsible way without the incentive of money. And people find that mm. um, a very, very kind of uh, a skill that they would want to hire, right? Yeah. Um, it worked for me. Um, you know, I, I think um, it's something folks should think about more. And through your local councils, schools or your local companies, um, you can also go and help in green spaces as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can help. There's tons of gardening that needs to be done in the country. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's aware of this, but you can tap into a massive gardening network right. uh, and start contributing on, on, on how to, you know, make green spaces look better, etc. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's important to kind of always think about, you know, how you can be uh, integrating yourself into society. Um, and, and it's generally more rewarding. So that's, you know, going back to the poor uh the low the low middle income communities point um that's how they get through right is is mm. through supporting one another but then also through contributing in you know their time etc through activities that create that bond and, and community kind of feel um so and you know and the only reason i talk about this is because it you know times are so hard at the moment you yeah. know i imagine there are communities out there kind of suffering yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And you're talking from experience that, you know, you've managed to transition from, you know, voluntary work into, you know, the corporate world and what have you. And obviously, are, you know, uh, being successful in what you're doing. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, people are so geared because you see so many things on Instagram and on socials that, you know, you need to have this mentality and a go-getting kind of thing. And obviously, you've talked about hyper-masculinity over the last few shows, yeah. you know, with the examples of people, you know, following people like Andrew Tate. You know, it's very much a, you know, a masculine-led, you know, thought process that you can achieve absolutely everything if you're an alpha and, you know, those types of things. And there's only one way to live, which is to be uber successful yeah. you know to the highest nth degree and i think what you're talking about is actually taking a step back and being able to accept and do something you know on a voluntary basis not beneath you yeah absolutely that's, that's what people perhaps think that okay if i do something like that i'm not on that fast track or i'm not on that track to success i'm going nowhere yeah exactly and look you know without sounding like, you know, I'm getting really old. I think, you know, you have to refrain from consumption. You have to refrain from saying, I want to dedicate all my time to making money so that I can consume things, mm. right? Like, that, that, and you'll realize as well, if, even if you do ever make money, that when you, when you kind of get to the end of it and you, you've done all the cool things of, you know, being professional, creating business, creating value, mm. that that's what the folks at the top realize as well is that, they actually need to go back and, you know, do some more gardening and, you know, go and help and do some more voluntary work with their communities, you know, because they realize like that's how you truly add value. Mm. And that's also what you'll find most rewarding in life, right? Like it, it will make you feel positive if you dedicate your time to those things. Um, I'm not saying, you know, it, it's a way out of poverty. It's absolutely not. But it, it's a, it's a definitely a way to, to kind of solidify yourself against uh you know adversity yeah i mean look, look, that I, I get your point of what you're saying you know there is this big thing about illusion of money and and there is that focus and that chase uh, there's no doubt about it but i think you know as we talk about in islam you know worldly pursuits are one thing and it's good to be successful don't get me wrong yeah of course uh, i think that you should have that that's an innate thing god has given you ability skills 
um, you know, um, perhaps even just the ethics to work and to have that within you to achieve, to provide for oneself. I think that's very, very important. But I think what I've seen is that, yeah, you're right. When people do achieve and get to that end goal of having, you know, an X amount or whatever it might be, that they then do turn to philanthropy and legacy. They, that's something that people of, you know, high net worth and under high net worth will start thinking about. Maybe some people will say that, look, yeah, oh, you can afford to think like that because you're financially secure and your generations are financially secure. So, okay, fair enough. But even then, I, I think you're right in what you're saying because I think that realization is because of that mortality that we all do have, we, we come into this world with nothing and we'll leave with nothing. We're absolutely. not going to take anything with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you also realize that, you know, if, if you spend time with super successful people, they know they that their family might remember them for that success. Mm. But outside of that, yeah. I mean, unless they've really achieved something, right, like in their industry, chances are they won't really be remembered for that, right? Mm. Like if you're if you're an in, a really successful investment banker, mm. nobody's going to care about your successful investment banking career. Nobody's no. going to ask you about any transactions you worked on after you're dead, right? Mm. Like so it it's it all seems very prestigious and glory like full of glory and yeah. worth it you know like um i'm going to be prim and proper i'm going to come across professional i'm going to come across polished sharp etc mm. but in the end it's all for nothing like it's it's almost like it's all for nothing and yeah. like don't get me wrong like you should create value for your family for yourself sure. and your yeah. legacy yeah um but you realize that actually the that your connection to people is way more important connection to people is more important definitely i think that word legacy as well because that can err into almost a vanity side as well that i want my name to be remembered and those yeah. sort of things and like you said you know people won't ask you whatever career you've had or what transactions did you work on etc etc it's more a case of what did you do to help people that that's going to last you know an echo longer into the ages than any specific transaction perhaps right exactly um and you know it's evident it's, it's very evident i think um so yeah um Moving on. So we're still in the weekly news roundup. Sorry, yeah, we've, we've got, got one minute to go to the break. So. <laughs> okay, yeah, we got carried away there, but it's okay. Uh, the Ty the Nichols case. So um, this was a really sad case where uh, a young uh, African-American gentleman was stopped by uh, five uh, African-American police officers. Hmm. They were a special unit, um, and they ended up beating him to death. Um, and I think if you watch the video... It's fair to say that it was there was uh, and there was injustice. Yeah, uh, he didn't deserve the beating. Uh, the beating came from the fact that I think Ty Nichols uh, temporarily resisted or tried to uh, run. Z, um, let's let's summarize sure. it a little bit more because we've got the news roundup coming up. We'll start afresh on the other side and we'll go into that topic. So let's cool. see what comes up. Please do join us after the news break. Good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It's uh, the 4th of February on a Saturday, uh, 11.04 is the time, and you're joined by myself, Shaz Alone, my uh, co-presenter in the studio, Zishan Mirza, and we are also joined remotely today uh, by one of our other co-presenters, Saf Amadi. Saf, you're on the line? No, just... Technical yeah. difficulties, or he just doesn't want to voice an opinion. Hopefully <laughs> we should have him on the line yeah. very shortly. That's um, okay. Fine. Um, Z. Let's go into. You just wanted to finish the news roundup and what happened in the states. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, police brutality um, case. Tell yeah, I wanted to squeeze that. this story in if that's okay. It really yeah. important story from America. Um, so, uh, Tyler Nichols, young African American gentleman, was murdered by five police officers 
Um, I think the the sensitive aspect has been that the five police officers were also African Americans, um, and they were a special police unit. Um, Tyre Nichols did, uh, I think, temp- temporarily resist, very very temporarily resist uh, arrest, uh, and it caused pepper spray to be brought out by the police officers. They pepper sprayed him, and uh, they ended up pepper spraying themselves in the process as well. Uh, which made them extremely angry right. uh, and frustrated, which you can see on the video. Mm-hmm. Um, and they took that that anger out on Tyre Nichols. They killed him. Uh, they beat him to death. And when his mother arrived at the hospital, he didn't really show signs of somebody who'd been resisting arrest. He'd showed, he kind of showed signs of somebody who'd been held down and absolutely beaten to death. Mm-hmm. So it was a really horrific crime. And, you know... What really turns this one on its head was that the five officers who killed him were African Americans. And so it's kind of relit this debate about, you know, how are the police trained in America? Mm. And, you know, not only do they have a racism issue in the police, but they also have this issue of the police, you know, not being trained correctly and kind of just thinking that they can do what they want, right? And then when you couple that with the fact that they have guns and, you know, they're not necessarily the brightest people. Like, I think I was reading something about in the country how there might be like a an IQ cap for police officers. So you could be too smart to be a police officer. Um, so all of these kind of variables. Now, I'm, I'm not sure like how much of it is true. I'm not sure how many police officers in America carry guns. Mm. Um, but the amount of people dying at the hands of the American police. I mean, I don't know if this many people die in a developing country, right? Like in Pakistan or in, in countries across Africa. Like, mm. I don't think the police are killing people, mm. right? So w- what is going so wrong there? And... You know, for five African Americans to kill another uh, African American when he clearly hasn't done anything that deserves for him to be treated in that way or, or beaten in that way, you know, it, it it's now raising the question of how police training is actually uh, executed in America, and you know, what is what is going on with the 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 tone and the view towards African Americans, right? Like. There needs to be some serious training in the police about how to deal with different communities, you know, take into account different cultures. Um, you know, there's a lot of outreach work, for example, in the UK. You know, I, I'm not saying our, the, the, our police are exemplary, but mm. there are examples of British police, you know, doing a lot of out, outreach work with different communities up and down the countries. I'll give you an example. They did a lot of outreach, outreach work with the Nepalese community in Farnborough and Aldershot. Mm-hmm. Um and you know uh, the Nepalese will, will carry knives as as part of their religion. It's it's uh, to carry a knife, yeah. and so the police found themselves you know having to really learn about Nepalese culture yeah. and how to respond to these and how to actually communicate with them. Yeah. And they did it successfully, mm. right? Now, why are the American police not able to do that with the African American community in the U.S.? Right? It, it it's stagger it's staggering. Yeah, no, I think I think there's a lot of I mean there's a big element of the fact that they just don't want to. I think there's still um an element of, you know, wanting to keep people in place, societies in place, you know, creeds in place essentially. And, you know, how how better to do that than get, you know, the same community to police, 
you know those people you know of you know not have you know for example white police officers do that job yeah you know um you know you do talk about training you talked about iq yeah i mean but i think i think the this the sad thing is it's it's more so the element of power that perhaps people get which they aren't granted within their own society yeah and then when you get that you know from the job or the badge that you wear that's the scary thing that it sometimes tips into something which is unfortunately very 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 wrong and i'm surprised even in this day and age post you know the whole black lives matter movement yep. came just from pre- police brutality and the fact that we're still seeing that in this day and age and people are and the police are not even aware that this sort of stuff gets caught on camera i mean yeah it's beyond it's, me it's it is it's beyond me as well and and you know i saw a really powerful clip of um an um, african american poet now he he moved to Paris to to carry on his poetry, and when he went back to America to celebrate his poetry, uh, the the audience and the presenters asked him like, "Why did you leave America? Why would you leave your home hmm. and go and live somewhere else and succeed there?" Right? Like that's what they basically implied to him. They just they just said to him, "You know, why did you go to Paris and write your poems? Couldn't you write them here in Texas?" Yeah. And he was like, well, and he was an African-American. So he responded and he said, well, look, he goes, you know, more or less I live in fear in the US. Mm -hmm. Right. And he goes, it's the modern day. You tell me you don't hate me. Yes. But he goes, I'll point to your institutions. So you tell me, you know, um, uh, that you're happy for me to learn beside you but we have separate schools yeah. you know and or you know and and this is when um uh, america was fairly divided um or you tell me that you know you want me to publish my po- poems but you know i can't find any publishing houses that'll accept a black man hmm. so he goes what you're saying to me here on this show today you know why did i move it's easy for you to say that but when I actually try to connect with you, the the common American, the co- the common Caucasian American, hmm. your institutions won't let me connect to you. Yes. Right. You, your institutions won't let me be safe. They won't let me be educated. They won't let me be fed. Yeah. So I live in fear. So I had to go to Paris in order to succeed with my poetry. And, you know, the, 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 the audience is just sitting there in absolute awe because he's highlighting to them that you know saying something you know saying black lives matter is one thing mm. making sure black lives matter is mm. another thing entirely yeah right and yeah that's no, it. i think that's a that's a very important point and uh, again just touching on what um his holiness has said uh, in the past on this topic uh in 2017 uh he had said that at a time when racial tensions and prejudices are escalating in certain countries he said there was an urgent need to recognize that all people were born equal and no race or nation was superior to any other. Um, and he also used the address to categorically condemn all forms of extremism as well and those so-called Muslim clerics who are radicalizing Muslim in different country. Uh, further, his holiness called into question Western policies of selling weapons to Muslim countries, which he said were fueling fear, uh, wars and conflicts. So obviously, you know, that's something that the Holy Prophet, you know, on his deathbed said in his final sermon that, you know, uh, equality is key. You know, no one is superior to the other. We're human first. Yeah. And I think that's a very, very important point uh, to bear that in mind, you know, wherever in the world we are. Saf, are you joining us on the line now? Can you hear us? Saf has not paid his phone bill. No, yeah. <laughs> I think Sorry. he's. Can you hear me? Oh, oh yeah. Hear I can you hear now. Have you taken yeah. us off mute? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I apologize. I'm. Um... 
think we sort of have all sorts of issues no with, problems uh, with communication today no but, worries. Uh, yeah no no I, I just wanted to actually sort of ask a question about this uh, the, um, I mean probably for both of you actually um, in in respect to this particular conversation I mean th th there have been some discussions and I think there's been some commentators that um, have sort of classed this as a racist attack even though that you've had you know um, black uh, they were essentially black police officers that, yeah, yeah. Um, went after the black uh, thing um, I, I mean do you I struggle with this a little bit because on the on the one hand I, I can understand the sort of institutional racism side but as a racist attack do you sometimes think we're just sort of conflating, conflating it all into one? It, 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 it worries me a little bit that we always end up talking about this every time um, someone of colour is actually affected. Um, that I don't wish to, you know. And and again, I think there is a there is a real honest um, conversation that we should be having about yeah. the racism uh, prevalent. It's a great in, question, in America. But do, do, don't you think? I mean, I, I just worry sometimes. Do we, you know? Do we end up losing the crowd? Uh, because, uh, essentially because, um, uh, you know, they, they are going to come back with that criticism of it. Yeah, no, I, it's a really, really great question and it's really important to be nuanced here, right? Because I think, let's state the obvious, like, why, how could it be racist that five African-Americans murdered an African-American, right? Yeah. And and I agree with that, right? Now, but here's the thing. So it's it's the... It goes back to the uh, the way that the police are being trained and conditioned to believe yeah. African Americans behave. Profiling, e yeah, profiling, and even African American police can be led to believe that. Right mm. now, it now this is a really crazy thing to say, but it's not um, unheard of. Where, like that, we have um, African Americans who aren't able to clearly understand in an informed way. The, the racial struggle of African-Americans in America, right? Mm -hmm. Not all African-Americans are going to be able to relate to that. So now, if, if you're in the police, chances are you're going to relate to it less, mm -hmm. right? Because your, your every day is, is, you know, is going to be with most likely other police officers mm -hmm. who have similar views. And we know in America that there is a, a problem in how they frame and view African Americans, mm. right? Like it's it's an automatic hostility towards them, and I think that goes for the African American officers as well. I think there's probably very few African American officers who are like, oh yeah, like you know, um, I, I protect my, you know, I'd protect my African American brothers over the police. Mm. I just, you know, I I think they see their job as the police as the most important thing, and then the philosophy and the theories being taught by you know, in training to police officers, hmm. um, you know, probably doesn't help in, in you know, uh, how they see African-Americans. Um, so it does, it, for me, it's a profiling thing. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I get your point. It's something, obviously, I think we, we need to improve, improve on policing training as a whole. You talked about the racism issue. We've had a massive issue here in the UK where there was a police officer who attacked a number of women. There was a lot of crimes committed by him. And the fact that you think that someone in authority has been able to get away with this for years on end yep. is a scary thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when you're in position of power, and that's we talked about it from a different perspective earlier, being rich and being powerful and what have you, being influential, that you can do good and you can do charity. I think equal here is that when you're in a position of power and authority within society, again, you're at a higher standard. I think, you know, perhaps people like the police force and what have you, you should be looking more at them uh, in terms of, you know, 
you know, for how they tackle things and how they carry themselves as opposed to, you know, footballers who are earning X millions, you know, kicking a ball around essentially, you know, why do we look to people like that? Because they're successful. Yeah. Um, But, you know, there's more sort of, I think, morality and judgment required when you're in a position of power and law. Yeah. And and the other aspect I would add to Saf's question uh, or to respond to Saf's question is, Mm. you know, I think if you assess that whole situation, it's it's the absence of all the other factors, right? Like, what else could it conceivably be? You know, why would these five men beat this guy to the point he's not breathing anymore? Why would they not restrain him and take him to the police station? Or why would they not injure him and take him to the police station? Why was it a beating until the death? Mm. And then that's when the question of racism... You're right, it, 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 it does seem silly then, doesn't it, to, to, to raise... Well, you know, an African-American has killed another African-American and then to call it racism seems absurd. But in the absence of other factors, yeah. you almost end up there. So mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's a really good question. And, you know, I don't know if there's an answer to it. No, I, I, yeah, no, no, no I, 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 sort of, I don't really ask it to, to, to be, uh, I don't know, to be difficult. Yeah, no, no. No, no, the reason why I query is I actually do think that there is an issue here. I think there's an issue, like you said, you know, like to beat someone to uh, to the edge of their life or you know to the end of their life in this particular instance. Mm. Um, why do you feel that it's okay? Would it have happened? I, I think, and the, the the real question is, would it have happened for someone of a different background, of a different color, or you know, is it sometimes is it viewed upon these people? I, I think the problem, uh, the reason why I'm sort of querying it is because it has come from a lot of commentators. Yeah. Then, therefore, you almost have to ask the question or you sort of you know you really sort of have to drill down um what's going on here and i, I think what that that's what something that i i feel needs to be done in this particular instance that, that there is a that there is an element of we really do need to drill down as to why it's okay when it happens to them or oh, sorry why is it perceived to be all right from the police's standpoint that when it happens to someone of color but not so much if it was happened um, to someone of, of a different background. I absolutely agree. And it's, a, it's, it, it, it's an important point, I think, that uh, we just need to sort of keep it. To. That's what yeah. I mean, the, the whole clouding up of, you know, like the clouding up of everything. Um, it, it's it's important that we don't lose sight of what the underlying issue is. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, like the, the definition of, of racism has, mm. has shifted slightly, right? So we're not saying, like, when we say that there's racism in the police, we're not saying that, you know, the, the police go around thinking, you know, like, you know, using racist terms in their head for yeah. everyone who's a person yeah, of colour. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah. none of that. It's It's actually so much more subtle, right? It's like, oh, you know, there's a person of color that's got their hoodie up they're probably going to nick something it's that like subconscious bias and that's the Mm. racism we're referring to um and which is much more difficult to get rid of um so and and i think that's why as well you probably hear commentators when when we use the word racism a lot of people struggle to see how it could be racism but it's like we're referring to like a much more subtle level of discrimination aren't we yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah so, uh, Z, tell us a bit about our main topic today. Now we've right. done a comprehensive news roundup. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, main topic today uh, is climate change and the impact on low to middle income communities. And I think, look, there's a bit of a sigh when we say the word, you use the term climate change, right? Yep. Yep. And so, it's really important to talk about it uh, in a way where it's relatable and we can actually 
um, draw upon the impact, right? Like we can say it's it's measurable and, you know, if we do this, it has a positive effect on the environment or if we do this, it has a negative effect yep. on the environment. So we'll, we'll talk about uh, the impact on low to middle income communities okay. uh, and we're going to use uh, kind of case studies and evidence, things that have been happening in the world to kind of prove why climate change is a relevant topic you should be paying attention to. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think the, the, the starting point um, is the uh, profits with uh, corporations, right? So we've yeah. seen Shell, um, I think it was ExxonMobil, uh, you know, it, it might not be correct, it, it might be another company, but um, who, who are making profits, uh, some of the greatest profits they've ever seen. Shell made the most money they've made since their inception 115 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it really then raised the question of, okay, you know, we need oil companies, you know, they're providing a, a fossil fuel to the world that we will use. Um, but what's going on with the monopolies, right? Like, and when are we going to start actually addressing the fact that, you know, these monopolies have never ended, they've just grown, and they're still de destabilizing regions, right? So, mm -hmm. for example, you know, African countries don't have access to their own fossil fuels. Now, yeah. you know, that's a very present issue. And so when we talk about things like, um, and again, you know, I don't want to lose people here, but, mm. you know, when we talk about things like slavery and the end of slavery, right? Yeah. The reason why you have so many activists saying things like, you know, the, the, the impact of slavery has not ended. We need like um, we need uh, like remuneration for it, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. It's because of things like this. It's because you know companies like Shell, etc., who've built their monopolies through uh, periods where entire peoples were being oppressed. Right? Mm. They now maintain those monopolies. Right? And they also retain all of the, the benefits that came with those monopolies, such as, you know, um, Shell, which has no uh, present, like uh, uh, no kind of rooted uh, ownership in Africa, mm -hmm. still has ownership over oil reserves all over Africa, right? Like, so there's this really big issue, I think, that um, needs to be addressed around, you know, what is lawful when it comes to corporate behavior, Right. And we I don't think we've addressed that as much as we should. I thought we were going to address it when um, there was the big oil spill in the in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Right. It felt like um, everyone was kind of gathering around to, to talk about, you know, how we need to break up big oil companies. Mm. Um, but it's not really happened right now that that's one thing uh, on the on the climate change aspect. The other aspect is. Um, you know the the actual environmental impact and then there's going to be a point that we debate as well which i'm going to come on to but mm. just quickly on the environmental impact we've seen pakistan flooded heavily mm. right um, and we've seen um the the united nations and other kind of international organizations now pledging to to help pakistan um but the the, the really interesting point is to draw the link between the floods in pakistan and the fact that um, the economy forecasting for Pakistan has now kind of taken a significant downturn. Not right? I mean, the currencies are the worst it's ever been. It's right? the worst. And they need IMF loans. Exactly. They need IMF loans. Yeah. And, 
there's a now, you know, you could argue there's a direct link between um, natural disasters occurring because of, of climate change, yeah. right, um, and the economy. So you're now starting to see direct impacts to economies. Now we're seeing, in, we've been seeing in developing nations for a while, mm. um, but it's, it's going to turn up here as well in the West eventually, right? We're going to start to see natural disasters, etc. Now, th- the opposite view to that is, um, and I've seen this, which is, well, banks and underwriters and insurance, etc., give loans, you know, d- everywhere. You know, why would they? If all these places are flood risks, etc., yeah. why would they continue giving these loans? Well, it's like now you have it, right? Pakistan is now closing up for investment, mm-hmm. right? It's been hit by floods, yeah. and nobody's giving loans. Nobody wants to come in for investment, yeah. right? So you're, you're now, you've got a real-life case study mm-hmm. of how this is out, all actually playing out. Yep. Now, the the next denial is that it's Pakistan, it's very far away, it's a developing country, et cetera, et cetera, so it won't happen to us. But that seems very nearsighted. So that's just something to think about. Now, what effect is it having on us? We've got ULES. We've got the expansion of ULES coming in. Yep. And I'm really keen to discuss this because, um, you know, I, I believe everyone should have access to clean air. Um, but Saf, I'd be really keen to hear what you have to say about ULES and and what you think about it. <laughs> with I think with ULES, look, I I think there is absolutely a need. Um, uh, we need to get um, our air cleaner, especially you know uh, around a city like London. My concern a little bit with ULES is that the way that it's being instigated and the way it's being introduced is it's another charge. Um, now. If everything becomes monetary, um, ultimately the people that pay the most for it are always going to be the people sort of between middle and low incomes. I agree. Right now, uh, and there, there is there is an element of it which I worry about that essentially, if you're rich enough, you're allowed to pollute enough. Yeah. And I think that they, we have to be a little bit more cleverer in how we uh, how we roll these schemes out. Um, the introduction of a sort of straightforward charge of £12.50 that everyone that lives in the M25 has to be has to pay to sort of run their cars. I, and I, I understand that there's going to be all these different schemes and what have you, you know, that maybe the charge won't be as uh, heavy. Um, does not seem to me to be completely fair, considering that most of those people, again, that are going to be seriously hit by it are going to be the people that live in, you know, suburban areas that will be on low to middle income yep. um, uh, uh, households that this is an extra charge and then you're talking about what it's, it's nearly you know it's, it, you're coming up to about 80 pounds per week um, for uh, for having you know like for, for running a, a car that may not be compliant now what's your other thing you end up buying a car um, which which is compliant and that offers you that there's a, there's a there's a there's an immediate cost yep. to that so one way or another, you're losing out. You're, you know, you're, you're going to be there's going to be people that are struggling. So I think that the introduction of ULES, whilst the principle is good, I think the actual underlying um, the, the way that it's been executed um, has just not been creative enough. I think that there, there there had to be a much more creative way of introducing it um, and allowing people to do it. I think there needs to be a lot more research done into, you know, what, for example, you know, alternative methods 
of uh, fueling and you know how how are you how can you do it in a way that it's introduced in a way that it allows people to be able to that you know people are incentivized to actually go in that direction rather than punished for not going in that direction yeah um, that's a great and, point and, yeah. and, 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 and that that's where my that's where my major concern about you lays like I, I i don't disagree with it in in the in the terms of the principle of what it's trying to achieve i think the uh, we do need to have a much cleaner thing. You know, we we do know that, for example, I, re- I remember, you know, I, di- I didn't live that far away from the North Circular at one point. And that place, you know, like you could just literally walking, walking along those streets. I, I think, you, you know, you could probably at one point, I think it was the same as smoking five or six cigarettes. Yeah. You know, it was the same as just walking down that street. So it had the same effect. Yeah. Now, that's that is a problem. And I agree that we need to do something. I'm. I'm just concerned that the way that it's been handled and the way that it's been introduced, um, uh, it's um, it's just not creative enough, really. I, I, I think that they do need to sort of sit. Uh, it would be better if they could sit down and, and figure out a much more um, credible way of uh, bringing it into force. Yeah. No, I have to agree. You know, I think the the uh, I was living closer to the city as well, and I have to say that the key difference i felt when i moved out was my breathing um you know and, and the congestion in my chest mm-hmm. it was a massive difference um and you know that's that was a real life effect you know that a real thing that I, I saw a difference in so um i i have to agree with them the the point about smoking cigarettes you know just by walking down the road it's, it's so true yeah. i feel that way as well mm. yeah you, yeah and I, I mean, you know, and I think the, the sort of, and I think the wider aspect of the whole climate change, and I think this is, again, unfortunately, it's something that the right wing has cottoned onto. You know, like they sort of really gripped onto uh, the idea that, uh, unfortunately, the costs that are being incurred are being essentially having to be met by again the lower middle class, um, uh, you know, uh, sector sector of society to try and meet those uh, meet those costs. It it is a problem. It, 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 it's you know how we do this shift where there's a there's a much more fairer way of um, um, uh, you know having that shift into a much more cleaner world. Um, we, we do have to sort of consider that. I know you know, and again, people sort of always say about China and and uh, you know those, those countries that they, they need to uh, be more apart. And look, I think they will. You know, like they will they will make that shift. I think you know you can you can only do it by um, by changing your own sort of country by by introducing technologies that are cleaner. Um, they will take it up. Ultimately, they will take it up. You know, if you know that, for example, solar wind is a cheaper form of energy than sort of extracting and refining fossil fuels, then absolutely, I think you know you know money does talk at the end of the day. People do go to a uh, do a cheaper. Um, cheaper way of doing things but at, at the moment I, I think that the burden is being placed too much like you said on I mean and you know like when a company like Shell is making bumper profits as it is um, I think you know I'll go back to another point you know it's not just the actual um, idea that they go into different countries and they can sort of extract from all of those countries and not really have to make any uh, uh, positive uh, any positive moves in those countries or, you know, by paying tax or by employing people. I think the major concern I have is that there have been times when governments go out of their way to bail out or assist uh, oil companies 
um, you know, like to keep to keep either the lights running or to keep things moving or you know, like to pay the litigation costs or you know, uh, they work in their favour. Sure. However, all of a sudden we've got a massive oil price rise. And nothing that the oil companies have actually done to sort of, there's been no skill involved in that oil price rising to the level that it has done. These are, these are all political and external factors that cause that. Yet they, uh, you know, now they're sort of in a position where they're doing very well. Um, surely they should be paying something back. I do have a lot of sympathy for that view. You know, like as somebody that works within capital markets, yeah. it may be, you know, it may seem like a bit counterintuitive, but I do think I, I think there, there there is a real real argument that when things are tough for these companies, we always go bailing them out. As soon as things are good, we don't do that. And I understand where people would have some real reservations with the way capital markets are running right now. Yeah, uh, and the, and the government will hope that uh, sorry, the governmental help that they receive uh, doesn't always make sense. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And like, it, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Is uh, what is the corporate social responsibility of an oil company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we yeah. see it in finance a lot. Um, you know, mm. corporate social responsibility, but um, yeah. uh, how it works in oil companies, I think, is uh, still a bit dubious. Um, I, I, look, yeah. And I tell you another thing. I th- there's another uh, uh, odd thing about the oil companies, for example. You know, like everyone is very big on environmental, social governance. You know, like ESG investing, exactly. for example, at the yeah. moment, and everyone has a score. I mean, you, you, you it, it's amazing that you know the, the companies that with the highest um, ESG scores are actually oil companies because essentially they have all of the they can pay for some very high level consultants to make sure that they meet the metrics to get them very high up. You would be very surprised that, you know, like uh, uh, companies like World That Shell and BP and, you know, like a lot of others actually uh, score very highly on those uh, on those. That's uh, really things. interesting. It's a very odd concept. So, you know, like, again, it's, it's uh, one that you, one that you almost, and I, actually, I would go as far as the idea of ESG investing, especially the environmental side, people are beginning to query the, the, the validity uh, and not just the validity, but the actual credibility of those uh, of those metrics and those indices right now. Yeah. Um, because a lot of these companies just know how to play the game, essentially. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, that's really interesting because I think, you know, in development finance, for example, so where you have, like, um, like governments and supranational organizations doing development finance, so, like, a cross between investing and aid, um, you know, f- fossil fuels are out. Like you're not allowed, mm. right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if 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 you look at companies like Shell and Exxon, they don't really do much outside of you know their job, right? Like they're not building football stadiums mm. or you know hospitals or roads or anything out, like outside. So, I yeah, I I just yeah, I think it's a very tricky one. Any th- thoughts, Shazel? Yeah, I mean, um, just reading up uh, again on um, sharing what uh, His Holiness uh, Hazrat Mr. Ahmed the leader of the Ahmadi Muslim community, has said on this subject in particular. Um, He has said that, uh, he spoke about uh, the environment as a whole, and further speaking about the role that governments can play, he said, and I quote, it is the job of the governments that they should organize tree plantations and run their industries in a way that reduces carbon emissions. China is now saying that Europe and America, this is important, exactly what you said, Z, benefited economically 
from the previous 50 or 60 years of using fossil fuels. And so China is going to catch up and then take action on carbon emissions. So everyone is after their own interests. Yeah. His Holiness said that the issue of climate change has been politicized and gave the example of how Pakistan blames the West and Europe for causing climate change, which has caused heavy flooding in the country. However, His Holiness said that Pakistan did cut down its own forests, so they must too take responsibility. He said a selfishness has taken root. Wherever industrial development is taking place, for instance in India, then India is saying that why should they reduce their carbon emissions and so too is China and so too are other countries which are developing because the West has developed and reached a better place and they are telling others to reduce their carbon emissions whilst also refusing to face any downsides themselves of reducing carbon emissions. It's such a great point. They wish to say as developed as they are, so it is all highly politicised. His Holiness also cited that wars are having a negative effect on the environment and contributing to global warming. Yeah, I, like honestly, I it, it's so well put together that paragraph. I think the look the this is really important, right? Is when we talk about climate change, what is the science, right? So mm-hmm. when Pakistan is flooded, what was the cause of that? How do we work that out, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and and that's where it becomes politicized, right? Yeah. Is is um, well, this country's you know setting off. You know, giving off this many emissions and therefore it must be them etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's actually very it's very close to home right like if you cut the trees down mm. it increases the probability of water flowing over that land right like and destroying it etc so it's so simple you know in some ways and you don't have to make it complicated or politicized mm. and you know it's such a great point from Hazur that you have to take mm. responsibility and you have to think very carefully about where what the cause might be for for the change and i think that that points to those smaller habits right the little decisions that you make have big far-reaching effects because they're old you know they total and they're some of their parts and i think that's something that's very very important here definitely sorry Saf. yes sir no no i was gonna say no no i completely agree and i I think um i think you know i always sort of point to one uh, current, I think I, I say current, but uh, it's slightly moved on. When, for example, uh, the, you know Bolsonaro, the last president of Brazil, when he was a place, I mean, he actually went through a whole period of, you know, it, it, was, it was one of the worst times for the Amazon. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, at least he was, at least he was giving a lot more contracts out for the for the Amazon. Now, <laughs> the Amazon being uh, incredibly important to us because they act almost like the lungs of the of the planet. But again, what was being driven by that was the greed. Um, you know, it's it's almost the thing. But at the same time, you can almost say Brazil, unfortunately, has also got itself into such a, uh, such a financial problem in you know in the sort of late 1980s, where it has these huge debts which it also has to uh, meet. Um, and you know, it's always been stifled from sort of moving forward. The minute it starts doing well, um, you know, they they have to you know like they have basically triggers for some of their debt that has to be repaid. So it's again, you know, you can almost make that argument that yes, then you've got um, uh, you've got the, you know you've got the IMF who essentially uh, they're, they're owed money, who you know, and anything that they do well, um, they got, and it's really this it's this vicious cycle that suddenly sort of creates. And actually, what it ended up doing was forcing a lot of the Brazilian people to sort of see this as a credible possibility that yes, we'll cut down our forest because we get a lot of income and uh, there's, there's a lot of economic output from that not realizing what the actual real fundamental problems, you know, like to the environment that that was going to cause. Although I think even knowingly, uh, but it was for economic interest. 
and yeah. everything sometimes being driven by economic interest. I think we have gone into a period of uh, history right now where everyone is vying for their own economic interest to such a level now that we can't make real um, policy, global policy changes and necessary global policy changes, you know, especially on the environment. I mean, you know, we've seen like part of Antarctica, uh, you know, one of the biggest shelves of that actually sort of fall away um, in this last few months. Yeah. I mean, these are really scary things, you know, like these, these, these are, I mean, it's going to raise, you know, like raise water levels by another, you know, meter or two meters. This is a problem. This is a real, real big problem. I mean, half of England is going to be submerged you know, if that continues. Yeah. Um, I, I, and we do need to be really um, concerned about this. But as people are still chasing their own economic interest, it's very difficult to see how things will shift. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. And, and that point you made about economic value and that self-preservation, thats I agree with that as well in the sense that you know, I feel like everything is interpreted as um, whether it can continue going upwards on a chart, right? Like, yes, and yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And you it's know, gross. it's great for great sake. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's like you know, society just doesn't function in that way, right? Like, and you know, everything isn't just supposed to grow in a with a green light at the top of it. You know, just going and going yeah, perpetually. Yeah, it it just doesn't work that way. And mm. and but and so then, but people are so conditioned for everything to be returning you know giving returns or you know performing etc etc like even even if you think about what we do right like in investing right long-term investing it's it's just a line going continuously up right like and we're not considering any of the external market like global things that are going on we're just hoping that that line continues to go up so that we get a return on our funds you know and and that's exactly how the world is currently structured it's for shareholders at the moment i agree yeah and i think this is essentially that becomes a part i mean Charles will probably concur on this you know a a, um an investor will always want to see that line going up and you know Mm. sometimes they can have all of the wealth in the world but if that line's not on an open trajectory or not and you can sit there and saying oh you know what at the end of the day i still invested in this company because um look it still has a good social economic value or you know it has a good societal shift they'll pretty much tell you where to go exactly (laughs) why is that line not going up why is that line not going up you know um i'm not really that bothered about the the thing why is that line not going up and it can just become a game so I think that there has to be a shift in mentality, and I think that's a very, um, it is something that has come, it, it's now ingrained in all of us. It has been the method to which, ever since sort of post Second World War, there has been the shift and move towards, uh, you know, growth for growth's sake. And we, um, we, we I, I think we're, unfortunately, we are at a point where we, are, where we are reaping what we have sown over that thing. You know, you look at the sort of boom 80s and the 90s. Um, uh, we are essentially in a in a period of time where um, that 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 level of uh, I, I know for one of a better word that level of greed has is is coming to fruition. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with exactly what you're saying, Thaf. In, in terms of expectations and greed and what we want, you're right. We always want one thing. You know, uh, when I when we look at you know sort of investment uh, proposals and companies to invest in. You know, it's crazy to think that you'll turn around and say, uh, for argument's sake, uh, Deutsche Bank reported this week uh, 1.5 billion euros of revenue. 
but the stock went down. Why? Because they're expecting 1.6. I mean, does it really make that yeah. much a big of a difference? Mm-hmm. You're a successful running company. 100%. You're still earning revenue, but you're not meeting your expectations. And you're not meeting your expectations. Why? Because you have a team of analysts and people who just always think everything is a straight line. Exactly. And they don't live in the real world. Yep, hundred percent. And let's let's talk about the tech layoffs, right? So, like yeah. all of the big tech layoffs. So, Google, Facebook. You're telling me they can't afford to keep those employees? They can mm-hmm. afford to keep those employees, of course. right? It's a business decision. It's a commercial yeah. decision they've of made to to keep that line going up. Yep, absolutely. And look, so I've talked about the Amazon, right? You talked about the rainforest, etc. When you, t- you majority of the people you talk about in this generation said Amazon, what my delivery is going to get. You know, affected Amazon for them is a company. It's yeah. not the rainforest. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, um, so I mean, even I mean, you take somewhere like Facebook as well. This this last week, I mean, you know, it, it had these, it had this stellar performance this week. Was it on the fact of you know ad revenue being higher or this or that? It wasn't actually. It was because he's talking about restructuring and buying his stock back because essentially it's cheap right now. So he's you know prepared to do that. So you have this uplift. Or twenty percent in a day. Yeah. Exactly, but the world is the world is a little bit off kilter because we're not value. We also we're not valuing a company based on you know their book value or the metrics that they sort of represent. We now value as that sort of how much do we want to own it. Um, and I think one has to be real, really honest about the fact that um, uh, you know the, the way the capital markets are run right now, that there's, there's a lot to be desired. You know, it, it doesn't always sort of make sense. It's extremities. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think yeah, there's yeah. a desperation yeah. and a and a sentiment and almost a herd mentality involved. You know, um, at the start of this year, uh, example Tesla, which is run by Elon Musk, who, who is someone who. You know, who divides opinion uh, in the in the person that he is, but generally speaking, he wants to be environmentally friendly. He's been a big cause of why we are now almost globally looking at electric vehicles going forward. You know, their share price went from one hundred three to one ninety three in a matter of a month. Yeah, I mean, what has changed so much in a month that you have gone from rating a company that's gone half its value? Sorry, you're not worth what you are. Yeah, and within a month, we're back to oh no, actually, you are worth that. Yeah. 100%. And that is where I think society and our greed agreed in both ways. You know, we talked about Hindenburg and benefiting from things going down. Yep. I think that in itself is something which is quite worrying that you would be able to profit off hardship. Yeah. And I think that's something where these capital markets we talk about efficiency, but you know, how can you profit from from basically yeah, desperation is sad. A hundred percent. And, you know, to, to let's talk about that hardship point, right, is how can you profit from hardship? We're talking about Amazon. Mm. And obviously Amazon's been in the news uh, for labor malpractice, right? Like yep. they've been mistreating their workers a lot. And corporation uh, taxes avoidance as well. Yeah, exactly. Right now, um, one thing that really stood out to me was um, Am- Amazon, and you can go and look this up, right? Amazon had a no ambulance policy. So if you were seriously injured or something happened to you that was serious at work, you weren't allowed to call the ambulance. Really? Right. And uh, this was like uncovered. Um, in It wasn't in the UK. I think it was in the US and another country. Only the good and, stuff happens in the US. Yeah. Right? And, and so they uncovered all these cases of managers having to drive people with serious injuries wow. to the hospital. Wow. Right. Now, none of that affected the share price. None mm. of that. So society does not care, right? Like society will read a story like that, and why are they not allowed to call ambulances? What because of negative press? 
it was it was something to, no it was time it was something to do with like time oh. lost on for wow. work etc okay um you know getting an ambulance into the site and the amount of um havoc it causes you know it stops people working etc so apparently it was all to do with that and it's you know, crazy because because the society we live in if i order something from amazon prime i need it that day Is yeah it that important? exactly exactly Is it that important well you know and th- but that's what we've been ingrained to it, now that's expect. how it's how it's society is structured so you know you might not get your ambulance working at amazon but you'll get your amazon delivery as a as a citizen so you know it's <laughs> it's the priorities are wrong um and yeah there needs to be I, I, look, I, know, I think I mean I think there's a, there's a there's a real fundamental issue right now with the way that technology has advanced our lives like you said I think of course all of these firms can actually completely afford to keep you know a large a majority of those people that they have laid off and um, I, I think that look we're gonna have to have a shift there's gonna have to be a shift in the way that people are working right now for example I think you've sort of seen the rise of you know, AI uh, programs, for example, this chat GPT, yeah. where you know, everyone's sort of talking about right now, which is getting, you know, like the people are writing the dissertations and doing their homework um, off of, uh, off of an AI, AI modeling system. Um, you know, services, for example, you know, like now will come under pressure. The, the necessity for people to sort of work in um, even financial services, even legal services, all of those things, you know, if you have an uh, artificial intelligence machine to be able to do all of that work for you, um, we, you know, there'll be less uh, need for, uh, you know, certain types of workforce. So it is a, it's, it, this is a real, I think we, we're going through a um, fundamentally um, shift, big shift in uh, how people will be, will be doing things in the future, you know, and how we're going to be employed and how we're going to be compensated for what we're doing. I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I would go as far as saying, I think that we, we are reaching an inflection point of some kind. I, I think, you know, we, that there will be, there will have to be a real, there, there will have to be a shift of the way people work and uh, the way people think and uh, uh, interact with one another. And I, I'm not sure this is, it's all particularly positive right now. Um, I think we, we need to figure it, figure it out and figure it out quickly how does you know in the nice way? How do humans fit in the world right now? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, it, it there doesn't seem to be um, any kind of rational rational voice on on things as well. Me and my friends were talking about how it's actually quite hard now to kind of find news outlets and and commentators that kind of talk about this stuff in an impartial way. Um, it seems yeah. as everyone's always kind of. Has has a motive as yeah, well. Yeah. Pain, yeah. 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 So yeah, no, I think that there's obviously you know that's a, there's a lot of challenging things that that have happened you know in society that we live in. But again, I, I always and it's holiness reminds us of this as well is that your choices as an individual make up a big um, impact on how society functions and works. Whether you're talking from a charity perspective, whether you're talking from a, a want perspective, you know, having things at your doorstep and and what have you i think you know there's real impatience sometimes in in the the society that we live in you know the instant gratification or results that we want sometimes without wanting to put the hard work in perhaps leads to all of these self-interests that we're talking about yeah absolutely and you know look to to go back to the climate change point i think um you know all these things are changing things are going to become more expensive access to electric vehicles etc etc 
Um, but there is things you can do to mitigate for yourself, right? And, um, you know, Hazul actually gave a really great point on this, which was, uh, you know, fuel consumption should also be reduced, mm-hmm. right? And uh, now people have become so lazy that if they want to go from one place to the other place, then the distance is only 100 yards or 200 yards instead of walking to the place they use their motorbike or car. Um, I'm guilty of that. And, you know, I, I think, you know, it's something we probably don't think about enough is how do we bring our own footprint down? And, you know, subsequently that might help us mitigate some of the the external things that are going on with the environment and, and how that impacts us right so for example if i walk more places i'm, I'm subsequently spending less more uh, uh, spending less on petrol and so if the petrol price is going up you know i, I can mitigate it to, to an extent but you know what's changed in our society and it's crazy to think about this and and you know like um I'll give you an example. Dubai is always, Dubai in the Middle East, generally speaking, people have always looked at it and thought, oh, that's the sort of pinnacle of laziness and affluence put together, right? And I remember uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, someone had, um, you know, from within our friend circle had gone out there and lived. And, and they said, God, can you believe it? They actually deliver KFC to their doors. And we thought, wow, how lazy are you that you get food delivered to your door? Yeah. And that is now a norm. Yeah. It's an absolute norm. You know, if, if if you get together with friends on a you know on a, on a weekend, who says I'll go and get the food? Yeah, you're nobody, not going to do yeah. that. No one does that. Of course. So, and even now, and then when you go into fast food, uh, you know, sort of outlets, the majority of people standing there are motorbike drivers. Yeah, yeah. There's 100%. very few customers, and and the people actually serving them are looking at a screen and just passing order for order for order. You as a customer are just like, oh, oh there's an actual customer standing there. Yeah. But their priority is getting out the 45 orders that they've already got on their screen. Yeah. And it goes back to that consumption point we were saying earlier as well. I think that's taken the enjoyment out of eating out as well, right? Like, I think a lot mm-hmm. of the things like that we used to love to do, so like going out as a family to eat pizza or go to KFC, yeah. whatever, yeah. it's just, it's not a novelty anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just considered consumption. Like, yeah. I'm just going to, you know, I'm eating pizza KFC to get by now, right? Like, yeah. this is so, you changed the dynamic. <laughs> Very sounded strange. wrong, but yeah. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. It's a health, healthy financial worker's diet yeah. right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, but uh, yeah, that's everything on climate change. I think. Um, do you want to do uh, go into sports roundup? Yeah, of course. Um, Saf, anything that's taken your eye in terms of sporting wise? Do we think Arsenal will will get there in terms of the league? I, think, I mean, I think that's the, I guess probably the main story right now. Are they are they going to keep this together, or are they going to do a inverted commas Liverpool <laughs> sort of you know fall away and? Um, lose the title uh, towards the end. I, I think, I mean, they look pretty good right now. I mean, I think that this will, uh, I think they could go all the way as long as they don't have any sort of major injury. But um, I, I, look, it, it, it's been a big move from where they were, sort of a mid-table team over the last few years to suddenly uh, taking over this top spot. Um, I think if you speak to most Arsenal fans, even they're probably more negative than everyone else. Um, uh, you know about their prospects of sort of remaining there. So I think there's a hesitancy, um, but they've actually they, they, surprisingly they, they they have you know they've kept it together up until this point. 
I think they're lucky um, in the, in the sense that look uh, Liverpool for example they won a league but it was in lockdown there were no fans in the stadiums you know people will voice and say well hey, sorry, are you talking are Liverpool were lucky or Arsenal I'm, 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 I'm linking the two up in the sense that <laughs> Liverpool had a um, you know what was a non-normal league win they they lifted a trophy which they haven't won for 25 odd years in front of no fans and played majority of games behind you know you know closed doors and I think what you found here in Arsenal's um, campaign this time around is there was a World Cup in between so there's almost been two parts to the league and whereas Arsenal normally as a side would falter come December when the cold months hit without having that um, you know um, longevity because their squad isn't as strong as perhaps say a Man City or even a Chelsea who are spending money like it's running out of you know going out of fashion Mm, Um, but that's why I think it's it's an it's an amazing opportunity for Arsenal in that in that regard. It's it's an unprecedented uh, league where there was a break in between, where some of their players who aren't internationals, you know, didn't get to play. Probably had some recoup time and they get to go again. Um, but I think people forget we're at the halfway point of the league. There's still another half to run. And in my view, um, having seen, uh, you know, how uh, Michael uh, Michael Arteta works, I, I think he's good with younger squads. He's done well. But I think you could really see that confidence unravel if they trip up once or twice and Man City keep up that pressure. I think you could see a spectacular drop. In my, I still think Man City will, will win the league, but uh, it'll be interesting to see because it will be a very dramatic failure for this to happen. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, what, they're now nine points, eight points ahead um, at, at this particular sort of moment. That's a lot of points to have to drop between now and... Um, now and then, but yeah, you're right. I think if there's anyone that you're going to be worried about, if you've got a Man City breathing down your neck, mm-hmm. um, that they, they do have the ability. You know, it's almost like I think it was like the Tiger Woods sort of uh, uh, element. You know, yeah. like when, when any golfer that's sort of that far ahead and knows that he's sort of right behind, yeah. they start poultry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think yeah, you you know you're absolutely right. I think I think that that, that there's an element of that. I think it'll be interesting to also see how Champions League. Now plays out. I think if yeah. I think if City also start getting a very good run, you could probably see attention sort of focus on that. It might work in Arsenal's favour. Um, uh, you know, like if they're if they're having a particularly good run um, in the Champions League, we're, we're, because we I think we all know that that is that that's the you know that would be um, uh, Guardiola's. I think he wants it more than anything. Yeah, I mean you know, that's he, he he'll be he'll be judged by you know bringing a club with the financial uh, you know power of a Man City, a European, a Champions League. That's key. There's yeah, no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah, Michael yeah. Michael Arteta will be judged by you know arriving. I think for him it was just arriving in the top four. But if you get a league win out of it, I think they will have done an you know a Leicester scenario almost. Um, you know. But um, but let's see if they <laughs> actually do. Arsenal, I can just see some Arsenal fans like, yeah, well, ready to call out. Yeah, they can call in, but uh, you know they're not even at Leicester yet. So let's see if they get to be a Leicester or not. So let's see how that pans out. But look, we're ending the show. Saf, thank you for your uh, contribution today, Anzi. As always, it's been a pleasure. Please join us on our next show.